good morning. It uh, has not quite been 25 years between sermons uh, like it was last time. So either we all did not age or it's been a shorter time. Let me begin by telling you a story, a fish story, okay? Um, It was a city slicker that didn't know much about fishing, but he went out and rented a little boat, and he rented all the equipment, and he paddled out into the lake, and he saw this guy with a mirror, and he was reflecting the sun on the lake, and he paddled up next to him. He says, what on earth are you doing? He said, oh, this is the way to catch fish. This is a special mirror. And when it shines on the lake, the fish come to see what the light is. And then I just take a net and I scoop them up. And the city slicker said, I'd like to have a mirror like that. I'll give you 30 bucks for it. Sold. And after the deal was consummated, the city slicker said, by the way, How many have you caught this week? And the fisherman said, you're the sixth. (laughs) Well, I tell that because when you read the passage of Scripture that we're about to read uh, from Luke chapter 5, some people call it the great catch. And the emphasis is on how many fish were caught, two boatloads. But it should be the great catch of men. The fishermen were caught, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Let's look at the scripture together. So it was that as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the sea of Gennesaret. Now, for those of you that need a reminder, Gennesaret is the same sea as Tiberias in some parts of the New Testament, or more often, the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, for those of us that need to have our dimensions clarified, is about as wide as from here to the junction and about as long as from here to Kyle. Now you understand the Sea of Galilee or Gennesaret. He saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were already washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Now, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, now launch out into the deep and then let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, We've toiled all night and caught nothing. Hmm. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Now, parenthetically, this is the second time that Jesus has told Simon Peter 
that he wanted him to be a fisher of men, James and John to be a fisher of men. There's an account in Mark where he just walked by and said he saw them fishing, be fishers of men. So they already had been called once. This is a second call, and he says to him, and by the way, Zebedee's not in the picture anymore. This is the second year of Jesus' earthly ministry. We don't know all that's taken place in the first year from Luke. We have to hear it from Mark, from John, and from Matthew. But he says to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Teach us from this example that was set on the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. Help us to see where it impacts us as your disciples today. And help us to get our identification, to know exactly where we fit in and the shape that we should be in your church and in your kingdom. For we pray this in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake, amen. The first thing that I note from this story is that failure is not final. They fished all night and caught absolutely nothing. But Jesus said, try again. Whether I'm looking at the history of our country or the Bible, I want us to be encouraged this morning from this story. Failure is not final. Uh, to, To illustrate that, Go with me to a laboratory. There's a man who has failed 806 times in his attempt to create an incandescent bulb, a filament that wouldn't just immediately burn out. And on November the 4th, 1879, on the 807th attempt, Tom Edison created such a filament. And we have the society we have today. No longer does it have to be a dawn-to-dusk society because of that great success that came after 806 failures. Go with me to North Carolina. There's a couple of men who have utterly failed 146 times. They go to this place near Kitty Hawk, and they have an engine in an aircraft, and they try again. And the Wright brothers, on the 147th attempt, get that plane to fly for about 120 feet for 12 seconds, and it ushered in the aviation age because they succeeded after failure. I want you to go with me to Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. It is the 25th day of May in 1935. A man that stands at the plate has struck out 1,330 times. It doesn't sound like much of a baseball player, does it? But this man took a mighty swing at a pitch And Babe Ruth hit the 714th home run, which was the record for 40 years. Success followed failure. 
a man named George Gershwin sat at the piano in his first major concert, and he played, and when he finished, people were snickering. They were laughing. That man thinks he's got talent? (laughs) Well, you know the rest of the story. Rhapsody in Blue was played by Gershwin all around the world. Success followed failure. In Kansas City, Missouri, a young man put his application to be a cartoonist. They sent it right back saying, you need to get another line of work. Failure. That man's name was Walt Disney. (laughs) One more. Young people in the room, those basketball fans in the room. There was a man named Michael that was cut from the A-team on his high school basketball playing. Michael, failure. His name is Michael Jordan, by the way. Success follows failure. But hey, let's not just look at our history. Look at Peter himself. Not only did he fail as he attempted to fish, you know, there are several examples. I I wonder, sometimes I think if I'd been Peter, I'd have sold my nets. (laughs) Uh, Over and over until Jesus came, they caught nothing. I don't know what was going on there, but he failed at that. Later on, you'll you'll read about Jesus walking on the water. And Simon says, Lord, if you'll just ask me, I'll go out where you are. Jesus said, come. And old Simon Peter was walking on the water. Hey, this isn't so bad. But then he looked down and he saw the waves. He felt the wind and he started sinking. He failed. And Jesus had to rescue him and get him back in the boat. You know the colossal failure of Peter as the night of Jesus' trials and tribulations. He denied him, not once, not twice, but three times. What a failure! But failure was not final. And after he confessed Jesus three times to make up for it, yes, I love you, I love you, I love you. When Jesus kept asking, do you love me more than these? Guess who got to preach the most memorable sermon on the day of Pentecost? It was Peter. And the same Dr. Luke that recorded our scripture today is the author of the book of Acts. And he says that Simon got up and preached. And when he and all the others had done their witnessing, 3,000 people were saved. As a disciple, just because you try to witness to somebody, you try to teach somebody, whether it's your own child or somebody else's child, whether it's your neighbor or somebody else's neighbor, always remember when you're trying to catch, when you're trying to catch men, as Jesus said he wanted us to do, failure is not final. In fact, What we've got to do is follow the admonition of the Scripture where Paul says, as many times as he had failed, he said, brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind me, and I reach forward to those things that are ahead, and I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Some of us are of the age where we say there are three things that happen when you get old. 
One is you start forgetting. (laughs) And I forget the other two. (laughs) Oh no, as I look at the gray hair in this room, I realize that, that we don't appreciate forgetting. But let me tell you one area where everybody in this room needs to forget. And that is every time we failed because failure is not final. And don't let Satan whisper to us, you're no good because you messed up. Let's go to the second lesson. The master's methods produce success. Now, I want to help you to understand fishing in the day of Christ. They would fish at night. And they would fish fairly close to the shore because that's where the fish would come in at night. And they would use a lantern, and they really would. Go back to that earlier story. There was some truth to it. They would put a lantern outside the boat to attract the fish and then bring up the net. They knew how to fish. And after Jesus teaches for a while, he says to Simon, Take your boat out into the deep. Excuse me. It's daytime, not nighttime. It's deep water, not the shallower water. And besides that, they'd fish all night. I I know that this man, Peter, was not a Baptist. Had he been, he would have said, Our nets are already clean. You may be a carpenter, but you don't know anything about fishing. We've already fished all night, and we are, as Texans would say, tarred. (laughs) Not tired. We're tarred. All these excuses could have come up because the master's method made absolutely no sense to a seasoned fisherman. Daytime? Deep water, not going to work. Now, I want you to understand, we sometimes give Peter more credit than we should. Now, we know about his failures, but like here, where Peter immediately said, uh, we fished all night and caught nothing, but at your word, we will. We make that sound like that was one sentence. I'm going to help you understand that. He was covering his tracks. He knew full well it wouldn't do one bit of good to go out in the middle of the water in broad daylight. They weren't going to catch anything, but okay, I'll do it. Every married man in this room understands this. (laughs) The kids are coming for Thanksgiving. I want you to clean up that backyard. There won't be anybody go out. It's going to be cold, but I'll do it, honey. Put up the Christmas lights. They're not coming this year. We're going there. Nevertheless, I will. I believe that's what Peter really did. He said, this won't do one bit of good. And and see, by saying that, when nobody does see those lights, we can always go back to our wife and say, told you nobody would see them. Told you nobody would go into the backyard. See? Well, That's the Simon Peter that I know. He was covering his tracks, and he said, it's not going to work, but we'll do your way. I want to give you one of the 
best passages of Scripture, I believe, in all the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament. God speaks through Isaiah saying, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The master's methods will produce success. Not my methods, not my way, but his way. I um, heard about a college student that broke his father's heart. First semester at college, he had studied biology. And his professor was sort of making fun of some people's beliefs about the Bible and all. And he came home, and it was in the fall of the year. He came home for a weekend, and he and his dad were sitting under an oak tree. And the boy said, Dad, I got to tell you something. I believe God made lots of mistakes when he made the world. And the father said, what do you mean, son? He said, well, let me give you an example. We're under this oak tree. Look up there, tiny little acorns on the oak tree. Now look over there at that pumpkin vine, a great big pumpkin on a little bitty vine. Now, if God had been smart, he'd have put the acorn on that little vine and he'd have put the pumpkin on this sturdy oak tree. About that time, a puff of wind came through, an acorn hit that college student right on the head and he said, thank God that wasn't a pumpkin. There's probably not a week of my life that I don't have to thank God that something wasn't a pumpkin, that he didn't do it my way, but rather he did it his way. Uh, we sometimes get so set in our ways that we don't want to budge. We don't want to get out of our comfort zone. Uh, a, a man that I've been reading uh, quite a lot recently uh, John Ortberg, who, who pastors a Presbyterian church at Minion Park, right outside of San Francisco, 4,000 member church, but he's an evangelical's evangelical. He believes in soul winning. He is a great speaker around the country, but he wrote a book that got Christianity Today's award for the outstanding book of the year. Let me give you his title, and I recommend it to you. The title is, If You're Going to Walk on Water, You Got to Get Out of Your Boat. Uh-oh. If you're going, you know the story. Peter's in the boat, and I already alluded to it. He said, Lord, just tell me to walk out to you. And he started walking on the water. John writes a beautiful book. And he exposes a lot of my prejudices, a lot of my biases. Uh, I grew up as a Baptist. And I sometimes think that the Baptist way was originally set by John the Baptist. <laughs> I sometimes think that the way we did it at the direct Baptist church in Lamar County, Texas, was God's way. And there ain't no other way. <laughs> I sometimes need to hear the master say, I'd like you to walk on water, but in order to, 
you may have to get out of your boat. Now, that's risky, isn't it? It's so much more comfortable for me to do things the way I've always done it. Until last summer, Trish and some of the others here know I never preached unless I had a pulpit. This is scary. (laughs) I had to get out of the boat. It's risky. When I think of taking a chance and taking a risk and how averse some of us are to trying the new, the different. You know, Paul said, I'll try try anything. I'll be all things to all men that by some means I might win some. Wow. Get out of the boat if you're going to walk on water. Take a chance. I, I heard about a little country town sort of like my hometown of Naples, Texas. We just had a weekly newspaper. Any of you ever have a town with just a weekly paper? Once a week. You got one right here, don't you? Yes, sir. Well, the problem was the editor was going on vacation. And he told his son, now here's the stories that I want you to put in the paper. He had everything ready for him, and there won't be any surprises. You can publish the weekly paper for me. Now, the boy was a sports fanatic, but he didn't know journalism. He was just going to write whatever his daddy told him to put in the paper. Unfortunately, a 98-year-old woman died, and he had to write a brief statement of her death. An old maid, 97 years old, Being the sports fanatic, not being gifted in journalism, here's what he wrote. Sadie's dead, but let it be said, for her, life held no terrors. She lived an old maid. She died an old maid. No runs, no hits, no errors. I hope that when God calls us home, we don't say, oh, yes, Master, we had no runs, no hits, and no errors. Um, Let's be willing to listen to God. And if he says, I have a way I want you to do it, I want you to fish at noontime when we've always fished at night. Let's give it a try. It might surprise you what God can do. Well, let's move on. When nothings and zeros matter. Now, we need a visual for this. First of all, let that sink in. Well, you've already got the visual. That's good. <laughs> I'll go to it also. These fishermen fished with a net. What is a net? Have you ever stop and think about this? It's a whole bunch of nothings tied together with knots. Now, I was walking my dog when it occurred to me to say to you all, we're really just a bunch of nothings. And my wife corrected me. She said, you better not say that. People won't appreciate it if you tell them they're a bunch of nothings. But do me a favor. Everybody look at somebody beside you and say, you're a nothing. It'll be 25 more years before the next one. (laughs) Now, I want you to remember 
this visual when we talk about nothings. In fact, we're going to do scriptures and then come back to it, okay? So that you won't get mad at me for calling you a nothing. Listen to what Paul told the people at Corinth. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. You got that? Nothing from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God. Well, if that wasn't good enough, let's listen to what he wrote to Corinth again. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through him you have believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Okay, those of you that got mad at me a while ago, you won't call me nothing. So everybody that got mad is saying, I'm better than Paul. Let me show you why. The next statement, so then neither is he who plants anything. Now that italics is mine. In the original King James version, the new King James, he says it's not anything. What is not anything? Nothing. So Paul's nothing. Apollos is nothing, nor he that waters, but only God who gives the increase. Now back up again to that slide of the fishermen. Note how many fish you can catch if all of those nothings are bound together. I sat in the congregation of the Southern Baptist Convention one of the years that I pastored First Baptist when everybody that went to San Antonio was at each other's throats. W.A. Criswell didn't like Richard Jackson, and Richard Jackson didn't like W.A. Criswell. Judge Pressler and the others were mad at everybody. They wanted to fire every seminary professor. It was one of the worst times of my life, but some good music person for that convention, Dan, wrote the theme song, and it was Bind Us Together. And I'll never forget walking into that huge room and the organ. That's one thing we Southern Baptists do at conventions. We pay a lot of money for speaker systems and that organ sounded so beautiful and the piano and they were beginning to sing, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with love. There is only one king. There is only one God. There is only one body. Bind us together with love. Now look at that net. When we're fishing for men and we're bound together, you can take a whole bunch of nothings like us, but bind us together and we can reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ. But now look at that net again. Can you all see the hole in the net? You know what that is? This last sermon I'll get to preach in this church. <laughs> That's when you get a whole bunch of nothings together without the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And that's what causes churches to split right down the middle. All these nothings are over here. Now you got a big hole. Nothing binding them together. You get a bunch of nothings over here. They got their own clique. That's what was happening at Corinth. 
Paul said, some of you say you're of Apollos. Some of you say you're of Paul when you're really just a bunch of nothings and without the one who is everything, we have no success. Wow. It's amazing what God can do when a bunch of nothings get together under his leadership. That, that's the net. Now, now let's move on forward to this. I had the weirdest undergraduate career. We didn't have a lot of general education requirements. So I had three majors. I had religion, speech and English as a combination, and math. Now, Dewey is looking at me like, then why can't you keep score better on the golf course? <laughs> Some math mistakes, John, are intentional. <laughs> okay. No, I was a math major. And uh, I want to give you a math lesson this morning. One that's in the right place with just a couple of zeros is worth a hundred. When you put Jesus first, then just a couple of us zeros make all the difference in the world. Oh, what if you got three zeros out fishing for the Lord? That's worth a thousand. Look what happens if just four. Hey, now do you understand what happened on the day of Pentecost? They had already replaced Matthias so there were 12 disciples. Follow the math. One Lord, 12 zeros. Say it with me. How many is that? A billion. You need better math, okay? You didn't respond quick enough. <laughs> one zero, one 12 zeros, but one in the right place. Put God first. That's a billion. No wonder 3,000 people got saved on that day. When we went with Scott and Tara to the Temple Mount, several of us in this room were there. Uh, you've got that 36 acres of the Temple Mount. And sure, Peter is credited by Dr. Luke as preaching the main sermon, but the Bible says the Lord continued to add to the church. So you got about 10,000 members of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem in no time at all. Now, the way that worked is all those zeros lined up, and they were up on the Temple Mount as people came for the various sacrifices and to visit the temple and visit Jerusalem. And somebody would say, hey, uh, James is preaching over there on that part of the Temple Mount. Go hear him. Hey, Peter's over there. Go hear him. Hey, John's over here. Andrew's over here. That new guy, Matthias, he heard, you ought to heard him preach. He wasn't half bad. He, he's the new kid on the block. They were all the zeros preaching and teaching, but Jesus came first. Now let me give you a lesson of a sick church that doesn't catch fish. That's when we zeros get in front of Jesus. If just two of us zeros push Jesus aside and we get in the limelight ahead of him, then what is that? One thousandth. 
You diminish Jesus to one thousandth if two of us get in his way. What about three of us? Wow. That's one ten thousandth. And in some churches, <laughs> there's four or more. And folks, that's one one hundredth thousandth. So you can understand why some people have trouble seeing Jesus in a church like that. Hmm. We zeros, we nothings need to be sure that he is number one. Well, the last point I'll make, by the way, those of you that have suffered through so many sermons with me were in shock today when you opened the bulletin. There were four points. (laughs) Cheatham can never do but three points in a poem. You thought you needed a sack lunch today. But there's a fourth one, and that is that we have got to focus on our fishing. A farmer hitched up his horse to the wagon and went on the long trip to town. His old hound dog was behind the wagon. And the old hound dog ran over here and chased a rabbit, ran over here and chased a rabbit, chased some birds up a tree. I mean, he was all over the place. When they got to town, the old horse was fine. But the poor old dog was panting, just about to die. And the old farmer said, "'Twarn't the trip that got the dog. It was all them side trips.'" Let me tell you what concerns me about so many of our churches today across America. It's all of our side trips. We're supposed to be focused on fishing, reaching people for Jesus. Now, the pastor has talked about the peace plan, but every letter of the peace plan is to help us fish. It's not an end in itself. Plant churches, P, why? To win people to fish, to be fishermen for Jesus. E, equip leaders. Why do you want to do that? So they'll be intelligent, so they'll know theology. No, so they can catch fish and win people for Jesus. Assist the poor. If you don't do it to win them to Jesus, you might as well be the Red Cross or the Salvation Army. Care for the sick is the sea. You might as well be a hospital if we don't do it in order to reach people and to fish for Jesus. The last E of peace, educate the next generation. If we're not concerned that our young people learn about Jesus and become disciples of Jesus, we lose the world instead of win the world for Christ. Let me give you an alarming statistic. 450, roughly, thousand Baptist churches identified with the Southern Baptist Convention. 60% last year reported zero baptisms ages 12 through 17. 80% reported only one or no baptisms age 18 to 29. Wow. Our next generation coming up, 
and they're not being one for Jesus Christ. Whatever else we do, our emphasis must be on catching fish, on reaching people. This, this church knocks that statistic out of the park. We had 57 baptisms last year. 57, not just one, not none, but 57. But you know, we've only just begun. And rather than congratulating ourselves, we ought to say next year there ought to be 100 that are one for the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't know whether I'd share this with you or not, but I feel like I should. Someone wrote an allegory, sort of a parable about organized religion today. Jesus said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. But listen to what Daryl W. Robinson wrote in People Sharing Jesus. Listen close, and you'll be able to see where we fit in, where preachers fit in, where church building fits in. Yep, you'll be able to see where we all fit in. Now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish. And the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, year after year, those who call themselves fishermen met in meetings. And they talked about the abundance of fish and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they defined what fishing means. And they declared that fishing is always the primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing, better definitions of fishing. And further, they said, fishing is the task of every fisherman. They sponsored special meetings called fishermen's campaigns. We call them revivals. They sponsored costly nationwide and worldwide congresses conventions, to discuss fishing and promote fishing and hear about all the ways of fishing, such as new fishing equipment, fish calls, and whether there was any new bait that had been discovered. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings that they called fishing headquarters. And the plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. But the one thing they didn't do, however, was fish. Imagine how hurt some of us were one day when it was suggested that those who never catch fish really aren't fishermen no matter how much we claim to be. Yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman? 
if year after year he never catches a fish? Is one really following if he doesn't fish? What's our focus? Wouldn't it be ridiculous if you got a circular in the mail from HEB that said, this week only we will sell groceries. What if Hill Country Automotive ran an ad? For two weeks, we're going to sell tires. You'd laugh at that. A restaurant puts an ad. This week, we're going to sell food. It's just as ridiculous when our focus is all over the place, except where it ought to be, the focus should be on fishing, on catching men. I taught at Central Missouri State and pastored a little church. Paul and I have this in common. It was called the Corinth Baptist Church. And just 50 miles from where I lived was Kansas City, Missouri. The Ebenezer Baptist Church has their slogan as you go into the foyer. You know, ours, we say, connect, grow, serve, share. I want to conclude with their slogan because I think it's exactly what Jesus is teaching us. You walk into their foyer and it says, we urge you to wake up, pray up, preach up, sing up, pay up, and never back up, let up, or give up, or shut up until the kingdom of God is built up. Follow me, says Jesus, and I will make you fishers of men.